This is The OK Days, a podcast to change the way we talk about mental health. Conversations are about just that, how we can still find the more than okay. Listen in to hear your story within other shares. Welcome Dr. Bailey, Dr. Sawyer, and Dr. Grabarek. This is a special episode for me on a topic close to my heart as I continue to explore my MBA. Today, we are talking about workplace wellness. Whatever you want to call it, it is how organizations actually take care of their people. Dr. Bailey is a professor at the George Washington University School of Business who has designed and delivered hundreds of executive programs for a variety of firms. Dr. Sawyer is an assistant professor of management at GWSB as well, and her areas of expertise include diversity, work-life balance, leadership, and negative workplace behaviors. Dr. Grabarek has spent her career implementing industrial psychology solutions to improve wellness, retention, performance, and engagement within organizations. I could keep going on about these three amazing guests, but let's start talking about the connections between psychology and business, how to turn a trend into action, and what it looks like to bring your heart to work. So I always like to ask my guests how they got to where they are today. Could you walk us through this connection between psychology and business? Well, let me start just by saying that my dad was a high school principal and uh, my mom and my four sisters were all educators. And so it was sort of a natural thing for me to want to go into education. And I got into college and I looked around and I said, uh, wow, I really like this. Um, how can I never leave college? And I, you know, I figured there are just really two choices here. One is that you stay a permanent student, and that's not really a viable one. And second is you become a professor. So I decided to become a professor um, and ended up getting my doctorate in clinical psychology. But the nature of my dissertation, which was on narcissism and leadership, was such that when I was looking for jobs, I decided to apply to some business schools as well as psychology departments. And it turns out I got more offers from business schools than I did from psychology departments. And so that's where I went. And uh, But even during my doctorate, I had taken some classes on organizational psychology and um, um, organizational behavior, strategy, other relevant kind of business endeavors. And so it was not a difficult transition to make. Matter of fact, you'd be surprised how many professors of business schools are actually trained as psychologists or industrial psychologists or social psychologists or even sociologists. And so the connection, of course, is obvious, right, especially when you're studying leadership. I mean, leadership mm-hmm. is really a psychology. It's about the qualities of the individual, that ability, individual's ability to read social situations and to act in an intelligent and um, proper manner around them, to, uh, um, to in- inspire people, to lift people, um, to animate people in, in collective action. And that really comes down to understanding an individual's psychology, their psyche, their values, their priorities, their motivations. So it's a pretty natural connection. Mm, I 
I totally agree and I totally see it. I remember sitting in your class and when you introduced yourself, I thought that was so cool as someone with a passion for mental health and then being in business school, I totally see the connection too. And, and it's really exciting to see that there are classes on it and that you're showing it to other students too who might not see that di direct connection. Uh, this episode is actually going to be all about workplace wellness and corporate mental health. And since the pandemic, there has been what I am calling a quote-unquote trend of organizations starting to definitely pay more attention to their people's well-being. I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about how we turn a trend into action. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was, I thought that was such a great question. It is important, I think, to point out that this trend, as you described it, has been building for a while. Um, mm. Some big and important examples of it are, are, are firms like Google that did a lot of things to reduce stress in your everyday life. And that could have been as simple as they picked you up on a nice bus um, with air conditioning, with Wi-Fi, with fruit, with water. Um, with coconut water, you know, a few things like that, as well as providing these kind of fun spaces and work, as well as being very attuned to the environmental psychology. And that includes things like just the layout of rooms and, and the colors you use. Um, for example, there's been studies that show that people are more likely to use um, uh, um, stairwells to go up and down uh, as opposed to elevators if the stairwells are painted in a kind of brightish, comfortable tan. Um, and so that's environmental psychology, right? And, and, mm -hmm. so, and then firms like Google, and again, I'm just using them for an example. Lots of other firms sure. have done this, um, would do annual health tests where they bring a doctor in, they do stress tests, you know, they take, um, they take blood, they do the whole thing. And um, they actually would set up reward systems around this. So for example, if you, if, if, if your sort of a diagnosis was that, well, you need to lose five pounds. Well, if you actually lost those five pounds in some period of time, they would either give you some sort of a, a bonus for that or they would reduce your um, your uh, your medical insurance costs, your your component or your share of those. And so this has been going on for a while. Um, and, and I think that some uh, um, those organizations were doing it, hopefully because they thought it was the right thing to do, of course. But it also was drumming a younger population because of the, the biggest percentage of the population right now are millennials. And mm -hmm. these are the kind of lifestyle elements those, those health elements with physical and mental that they would like to see in their work. Now, what's happened with the pandemic is that <laughs> this has been, you know, this trend has been turned up or has an enormous amount of motivation or momentum rather behind it. So for example, at GW, one of the things they did early on was give everybody at GW a free prescription to Headspace, the um, kind of meditation uh, mm -hmm. app. And so I, I see things like that really building because you're going to have this, this whole group of really sort of psychically fragile people after the pandemic is that you know, they're a little afraid. They're a little uncertain. You know, what the world looked like is no longer what the world looks like. Um, there's going to be uh, an increased um, sensitivity to health and exposure to any kind of conditions that might compromise their health. Um, we've seen all sorts of health indices um, plummet during um, COVID. For example, 
well, plummet, increase, whatever you want to call them, um, mm -hmm. uh, suicides are up by 19%, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, that's a mental condition. Um, and uh, um, prescription drug, uh, um, uh, excuse me, antidepressant drug prescriptions are up by about 30%. Okay, so here's, here's folks mm -hmm. that maybe had a little predisposition toward um, depression, would have been just fine if it weren't for this sort of cataclysmic event. And so I think organizations not only are going to have to take care of that for um, performance uh, reasons, mm -hmm. that they need to keep people sharp on the job, and they're going to find real quick that that person that is, um, is depressed, is clinically depressed, is not going to be able to function as well um, as they would in an environment that Em, em, didn't embrace it. I just mean understand it, you know, appreciate it, um, have sympathy for it. And then they're also going to see with this younger population coming up is that that's that's going to be one of the things they're looking for in their organizations. Uh, not only are they going to want some remote work, obviously that's that's apparent, but they're also going to want to want um, uh, a a company that cares for them holistically as opposed to just from a salary perspective. And that's mm -hmm. how you make a trend, a, um, a practice. And uh, so I think you're going to see things like, you know, chief health officers and stuff like mm -hmm. that uh, pop up in organizations that are addressing these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for clarifying that, too. I, I think I am part of that, that younger generation. I was in the the working world for three years until COVID happened. So I, I really started to notice it at the pandemic. After the pandemic, I was actually working at different yoga studios. And I had this realization after the entire experience of getting laid off and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. That's how I got to grad school. And I, and I was thinking about how that particular organization wasn't fully supporting its employees' mental health, and this was a yoga studio. No. So I got think I got thinking if a yoga studio isn't doing it, I, I don't know who else would be. So this is this is what excites me um, the most, and I, I definitely hear the the action, the, the practice, and and the actually you know talking to to who who you're who's working for you and investing in your people. I think that's a that's a big thing too. Yeah. Um, and I would say one thing there, because I think that's fascinating yeah. that a yoga studio wouldn't have been uh, addressing mm -hmm. and sensitive to these kind of things. Um, uh, I think a lot of nonprofits in general, and I'm going to include universities in there, have been more sensitive to this for a long time. So I've seen instances as a, as a faculty member during my career where a fellow faculty member was having... Um, you know, mental, uh, emotional breakdown kinds of issues, sometimes fairly mm -hmm. severe. And what the university did was simply give them, you know, a paid year off to, you know, go mm -hmm. figure this out and to use the employee assistance programs, the, the EAPs, to mm -hmm. find, find, the, um, find the right care. Um, the vast majority of that covered for and then brought them back uh, in a very measured fashion after that. So I, I think some organizations are just sort of naturally kinder than other mm -hmm. organizations and um, just sort of did this because their roots were perhaps in more humanitarian pursuits in the first place. I mean, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, universities are basically monasteries. 
that's how they started and they still mm -hmm. operate more or less the same way. And so I think that that ethic has traveled through. Um, but uh, uh, it's so ironic that it's a supposedly advanced um, <laughs> uh, organization like a yoga, a yoga studio or a, mm -hmm. an exercise studio, a, um, I'm trying to think, uh, uh, <laughs> the various different alternative medicines that would not be mm -hmm. for that sort of thing. So that's, that's really ironic. Mm -hmm, very. And, and you're absolutely right, too. I think this generation, like if I'm thinking of my MBA cohort that's going to be entering into this this world in 2023 when we graduate, I think we are going to be looking for more, more of those holistic support from our future employers. And I'd love to hear from you, too, this role of organizational and individual change when it comes to employee well-being. So yeah. What do what are organizations doing, and what are we doing as individuals too? Um, I, I don't think that there's any real systematic approach in organizations to dealing with this mm -hmm. at this moment. I mean, what what they are looking at, and I um, have an article coming out. Uh, let me see, the seventeenth of this month on how to manage the changes people that return to work. But it's a very business oriented one. It's not really a sort of a mental health one. It's mm -hmm. how do you get people back on board and committed to the committed to the culture and ensure that the work ethic is um, what it was before, if not even um, accentuated. Uh, so when I looked at that question, I thought about that a little bit. And I always go back to this. My, one of my favorite psychologists is a guy named Marty Seligman. Um, and um, he's sort of the founder of the movement that's oftentimes called positive psychology. And mm -hmm. what he has is a model called the PERMA model. That's P-E-R-M-A. And the P stands for positive emotions. The E stands for engagement. The R stands for positive relationships. The M stands for meaning. And the A stands for accomplishments or achievements. Now, what I like about this is it's a very simple, organized way to think about the mental health of an individual. That what you need is you need, you need to have these positive emotions. Um, you need to sort of feel good during the, the course of the day. Um, but positive emotions are more than just happiness. They're about flourishing. They're about appreciating. They're about savoring things. Um, you know, ways to build this include, you know, spending time with people you care about, enjoying uh, activities or doing activities that you enjoy, lift, listening to uplifting or inspirational music. Uh, mm. uh, reflection and gratitude is a big part of positive, um, uh, just this positive outlook and positive emotion. And so I think that this is a model that an individual could look at and say, yeah, this is what I need to find to address my hedonic tendencies. And those are, you know, hedonism, the things that make me feel good, um, as well as my spiritual ones. And then all this gets connected to health life as too. Now, how then do you deal with this from an organizational perspective? I think what you try to do is when you're designing organizational programs, you use well-established models like the PERMA model to design your program. And then not only is your program designed that way, but that's how you're um, helping your employees. So you've got this consistency between the two different approaches. Um, that, you know, what, what they're saying in the organization 
and what they're privileging, what they're supporting, what they're um, uh, um, uh, financially rewarding are programs that they're also helping you as an individual to work with. So I think that there can be this big, this big gap between what an organization says mm-hmm. and what it is that they do. And if this were the case, excuse me, if these two models were the same, the one used by the organization and the one they used by the individual, mm-hmm. there's just going to be a lot more compatibility and mutual support there, which means that these kinds of changes are, are more likely to take root. Mm. And it's, you know, us work, us as the individual working with the organization and vice versa. Um, whose, whose responsibility is it in, in an organization for employee well-being? I know when I laid out these questions, I, I probably suggested CEO or HR. I'm sure there's more, uh, but those are the two that came to my mind. I'd love to hear what you think, too. Yeah. It, 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 first off, it has to be started by the board. So this isn't just a well-being argument. This is a profit argument, right? And mm-hmm. this is a profit argument, you can take the Wall Street because somewhere there's somebody, you know, always follow the money. There's money out there somewhere that mm-hmm. you have to sell what you're doing uh, um, to, to those people who are funding it in one way, shape, or form. And that's oftentimes Wall Street or other sort of financial um financial institutions. And so if a board is behind this and a board then goes to their investors and says, we want to put together initiatives behind this thing and here are the reasons why. And then they get an okay from that sort of meta group, you know, the the pension managers, um, the asset managers and so forth that are managing their money. Um, now then they pass it down to the CEO and say, this is an order, get on this. And then it's the CEO's job to hopefully place this high in the organization because, you know, HR gets a bad name um, and and, and sometimes legitimately so and sometimes illegitimately so. We tend to associate HR with, you know, paper pushers, but increasingly organizations have um, moved into the C-suite, people like the senior vice president for human resource management. Or oftentimes now they call it human capital management, uh, with the idea with the idea that the, your 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 human resources are actually capital in the same way that your cash is capital, your uh, your physical goods are capital, your distribution centers are capital. That this is valuable capital too, um, and that means they have a t- they have a seat at that C suite table. So that means the CFO, the COO. Um, all of the rest of them that are sitting at that table, they have an equal voice. And a lot of times these guys recently over the last, you know, 10 years or so have gotten some really doofy names, um, you know, just like uh, um, uh, senior VP for, for people. Okay. What, 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 you know, what, what exactly does that mean? Um, uh, Or, you know, for, I've actually seen ones that are like, you know, happiness, you know, the, the chief happiness officer. Um, I think that that's just gimmicky. Um, And, uh, and actually I don't think that sends a good message. It doesn't Mm -hmm. send a good message to the people below because you're thinking, uh, you know, okay, what's this, you know, what's this silly little position being put into place and are they condescending to us? And it doesn't Mm -hmm. send message to the people above uh, about the gravitas of who this person is. But ultimately, it should end up in the hands of that person. 
um, and whether they're the chief HR officer, if you want to call them, you know, the chief talent management, whatever it happens to be, ultimately that's where this ought to lie. That's who has, you know, of course, ultimately the board has has responsibility for everything. But the person with the day in and day out operational um, responsibility should be the, um, uh, the the this equivalent of a chief talent officer, a chief human resource management officer, whatever it happens to be. Absolutely. Um, what about the term people operations? Is that new? I keep seeing that, and I don't know if it's new, but I feel like a lot of HR is being referred to as people operations too. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. I've seen it, maybe not as much as you have. You got to kind of think about the connotations and the denotations of words. Um, mm-hmm. Because when I think about operations, you know, or operations management, and you probably picked this up in your degree studies as well, is that this is really like you know, setting up deterministic optimization models to be moving um, uh, assets in from supply chains in the most efficient way to facilitate manufacturing and then on the other end, distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, or, and maybe the chief operating officers are also the one that are overseeing budgets and telling, you know, different groups that, Hey, you know, we're going to cut your budget by this much because, you know, you're, you're, you're spending money on these things and these things can be done this much cheaper if we buy this software and so forth. I just don't like the word operations associated with people. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it kind of lowers the, um, Again, the, the, the connotation here is that people are, are parts and mm-hmm. they just need to be moved around in the most efficient fashion. And I don't think that's a good message to send. Mm-hmm. Well, you have, the, you have the same reaction that my operations management professor had because I asked him if okay. people operations was a part of our operations management class. And he said the same thing, that people aren't like cogs in a machine getting them to work this way or that way. So I, I like that you both had very, very similar answers. Um, and that also makes me think a lot about what we talked about in your class about managers versus leaders, um, the difference between the two. And I think about a leader getting this done, like getting uh, employees or rather caring about employees' mental well-being. Um, and I think a manager can too, but I, I know that there's a difference between the two, but I'd love to hear from you, what that difference is. Yeah, I don't like the terms managers versus leaders Mm -hmm. because it implies that some people are managers and some people are leaders. Mm -hmm. And so we make this almost sort of class or caste division about, you know, here are leaders who are higher up and uh, the ones that are going to take us to all the new places versus managers that they're just kind of, they're in that operations realm that we were just talking about here. Right. I prefer the team terms management and leadership. And, and the idea here is that it's supposed to talk about people, let's talk about functions. Um, and there's a function of management and a function of leadership. And so one of the functions of management is to bring stability to an organization. One of the functions of leadership is to change the organization. 
So you can see these functions have a tension because one is trying to change things all the time. The one and then another is trying to put some stability to this and build in build things into um, standard operating procedures. You know to nest things in the organization. And yet leadership is pushing this forward all the time, which is changing all this. It's a tension, but it's a healthy tension. And it also includes the simple idea that somebody could be a leader and a manager. Mm-hmm. So when it's my turn to lead, when you're in my domain where I'm the authority and I'm the expert, step aside and let me lead, okay? Um, Because I know more about this. And the rest of the people on that team and that organization, wherever it happens to be, um, Mm -hmm. needs to fall back into um, follower positions, um, and uh, maybe even accept the role of taking care of some of the management associated with this, where in um, other times, it's not my area of expertise, it's yours. And so it's my job to step back and let you lead then. So you managed at one moment, and now you're leading in a different one. So, and, and the metaphor I always use is a, is a jazz band, um, <laughs> because in jazz, what you find is, um, of course, none of it's written down, it's all improvised. And um, what you find is that somebody takes a solo and they go where they want to go. They soar uh, and then they turn around, bring it down, prepare it and hand it off to another instrumentalist. And then they back into a support role and let that under other in, uh, instrumentalist soar. In other words, let them lead the song for a while, and then they step down and pass it off to somebody else, and around we go. That's why I don't like the term that assigns it to the quality of an individual. You, sir, are a manager. You, ma'am, are a leader. Um, but rather, that manager can be a can potentially be a leader and that leader can be a manager. And that's why I prefer the terms leadership and management uh, to mm. focus on the functions as opposed to the people. Mm. Thank you for, for ex- like explaining that and showing us that difference too. I, I think I mentioned this a, a little earlier in our conversation, but I think a lot about this idea of uh, managers and leaders and, and, and what to do is asking the right questions. Um, that's what I do on this podcast. And I think that's also what we can do to, to turn this trend into action and um, process, like we said. So what kinds of um, questions do you think employers should be asking to check in with their employees' stress, anxiety, or hypersensitivity? Yeah, I mean, I think the first question, that any for-profit you know, uh, um, private organization needs to ask is, what's, um, you know, what's the dollar value here? And, and I, I hate to be skeptical, but they're there for a reason, right? They're there for shareholder value. And so overseeing the profitability of the firm is of primary concern here. Um, and, and then the, the question becomes, do these things add to our performance as an organization? Um, are this, these concerns about stress and anxiety and hypersensitivity, which I published a paper on hypersensitivity just a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, and the, the fact is that they do. I mean, there's a financial argument that can be made here. And, mm-hmm. and that's why it's the right question to ask is how does this help us as an organization? And it is going to help you in terms of your profitability and your performance. And so now what this becomes is a, is a, is a performance management practice, not necessarily a, 
you know, we're, we're taking care of our people, you know, some sort of hippie version of this is a, a utopia where everybody wants to work, but rather mm. it's this hardcore business. Okay. Um, but also now as we're going into it, that has real um, hiring and recruiting and retention value to it. And all those things are money oriented too, because the more people I have that leave my organization, the more people, the more searches I have to go on and to bring somebody else new in, to onboard them, to train them in the job. And that's expensive. Where if, mm-hmm. I've got, if I can increase my, uh, um, um, uh, the, the number of people that stay at the, uh, the organization um, because I'm caring about their stress and their anxiety and their hypersensitivity and things like that, then they're more likely to stay at my organization and that saves me money. And so, you know, I always feel bad about going back to this question um, but I, I think, you know, it's the same question when I talk about this from an individual standpoint, um, I use the term, the psychic bank. And so even there, I'm making a, a financial reference, right. By saying the psychic bank and when talking to certain people that have been under stress and anxiety, like a lot have during the last, you know, 18, uh, 22 months with COVID, um, is, uh, is they've been taking a lot of withdrawals from their psychic bank and not making very many deposits. And so even from a psychic perspective, um, <laughs> from an individual perspective, I'll use that metaphor, um, is what do you need to do to increase payments, um, to, to make deposits? And that can include things like the PERMA model, um, that can include um, any of the other many ways to deal with stress and anxiety. Um, some of them being pharmaceutical, some of them being, of course, therapeutic, some of them being more um, meditative in manners. There's lots and lots of ways to do this. Um, but uh, and, and so when I as an individual think about that and I'm talking to a person or I'm talking to myself, I think, mm-hmm. what do I need to do to make more deposits to my psychic bank? Um, and not just be making these withdrawals. And I think the same metaphor applies to organizations. You know, what do you need to be doing to increase performance in your organization? And these practices are going to increase in performance. So that's the right question. What inspires you to be even more than okay, Dr. Bailey? Um, well, you know, I'd say a couple things here is my, first off is there are just so many myths out there about mental health. And the assignment that most people want to make is that it is a weakness in the character of the person. And that, um, that just deeply bothers me because there is no difference between paranoid schizophrenia and um, uh, um, insulin, what is it that you need, uh, and diabetes. Okay? Mm-hmm. They are genetic conditions. And there's nothing you can do about them and they need to be treated and they need, we need to have as much sympathy for somebody with bipolar as we do with somebody with um, pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things I always push on people is to understand that if you're bringing a value judgment to this, what you're doing is actually preventing people from pursuing the care they need when they are facing a mental issue because you're essentially shaming them. 
right? We've heard of body shaming. We've heard of all these different kinds of shaming. And this is a mental health shaming is that, hey, this is your own fault. This is your own weakness. It's, it's like calling alcoholism, you know, a, a character flaw. Well, that's just not what alcoholism is. It's just not how it works. And that's not how any, any medical professional would tell you what it is. Um, and so there's that. So now the second part of your question, right? Did I get this right? What should motivate you to be more than okay? Yeah. What inspires you? Huh. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a really hard one in some ways. Um, you know, if you're, I guess a lot of this would be based on ambition. And if you've got ambition, you can't just be okay, okay at what you do, okay at how you feel, um, you're going to have to sharpen up your game. And that game is going to include both your physical health, which is, you know contributes to your mental health, um, as well as your work ethic, um, and, uh, and a series of other things in a, in a circumplex here that's going to help you um, achieve that ambition. Now, what if your ambition is to not have any ambition? Hmm. What if your ambition is to just be okay? <laughs> you know, True. I, I, I totally get that, right? I think that's a, that's a completely normal and acceptable um, a, a take on this. You know, as somebody who's <laughs> taught for such a long time and taught an awful lot of executives, uh, a lot of these executives, you know, come in and have a meeting and they, they talk about, well, what they want to do to be a leader and what they need to do to be a leader. And one of the questions I always ask is, why do you want to be a leader? And a lot of times I don't get a straight answer from that because let's say this was someone, this was a woman who was in uh, information technologies and she was really good at it. Right. I mean, she really gets the whole thing and she loves it. She loves the technical nature of it. She loves the problem solving that goes along with it. But somewhere somebody told her that she had to be a leader and but she doesn't even really want to. So, you know, the part of me that wants to say, you're OK. Why do you want to do these things you don't want to do? I mean, if you're OK and you're happy um, and you're meeting all your obligations and taking care of family members and your friends and your relationships, you know, and you're doing all these things, then what difference does it make? And mm -hmm. so for us to be more than okay, I think we have to have an ambition in mind and it's something that's near and dear to our hearts. Um, but we shouldn't have that imposed externally. Mm -hmm. I, I see that from a lot of places is that people think they have to do something in order to gain the approbation, the, the love, the admiration of others even though it's not really something that they want to do. Um, so is it okay to just be a good person? Yeah, I think so. Do you have to be a great person? No, <laughs> but since when is the, is the joy and the value of somebody just being a good person among their fellow human beings not enough? So I, you know, I would kind of turn that question a little bit and say, mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, why, um, you know, uh, don't we want to be better than okay and turn mm -hmm. it to why would we want to be better than okay? Mm -hmm. uh, I just put a little twist on it. Let's get started with that, that first question, because I always love to ask my guests how they got to where they are today. Um, and when I was even writing this introduction for you both, 
you both have done so much, which is so, so exciting. I would love to start with um, walking through the connection between psychology and business. Yeah. So how did we get where we are is kind of an interesting question because we met in graduate school when we were at Penn State and we were doing our PhDs there in industrial organizational psychology, which basically is the mixture of psychology and business. Um, and the idea is that, you know, all employees are people who have full lives outside of work. They are folks who have feelings and emotions and frustrations and all of those things come into play when they're on the job and become more complicated when the relationships that they're forming with other people have things associated with them that matter for their livelihood, like salary and promotion opportunities and things of that nature. So our relationships and the way that we conduct ourselves in the workplace is a little bit different than the broader scope of psychology. And thinking about the way that psychology plays a role in the workplace is a little bit different than thinking about a pure dollars and cents perspective because people actually are more complicated than just like an input, throughput, output um, equation. So the psychology and business connection that Patricia and I share started in graduate school and we really both focused on being interested in that connection from the perspective of thinking about how workplaces can promote employee well-being so that people can flourish better in society. But that's sort of where the connection comes from is performance is really people doing a bunch of stuff and whether or not they're doing stuff that contributes to the organization's goals and what the implications of that are for the people and their lives is really important. So we look mm -hmm. at how do you get people to contribute to organizations in a way that's meaningful for the company, but also for them. Mm. And what I heard from that too was really putting the human back in work because we're still human beings who show up every day to work. Um, we don't become robots. We, we have all <laughs> those things that, that you listed. And I know even the term human resources has its connotations. It goes through, I feel like it's going through different name changes and name shifts. People call it different things, but it's really putting the human back in HR. Um, and this episode is really all about workplace wellness and corporate mental health. And since the pandemic, um, there has been, I'm calling it a quote unquote trend of organizations starting to pay more attention to their people's well-being. I'm curious, how do we turn a trend into action? That's a great question. And I think a lot of organizations are struggling with that right now um, because there's a lot of of focus on, all right, the pandemic caused all these additional stressors for people. Burnout is at its highest, right? That than what we, at least what we're saying is at its highest. Who knows if that's actually true, but right. it's very, very high. It's higher than it was pre-pandemic. Um, and also it's, you know, people are leaving jobs. Like there's the whole idea of the great resignation, which I think is a bit of a misnomer. People aren't really leaving with nowhere to go um, just because they're not happy, but they are reevaluating and looking for different roles and looking for different opportunities that are going to be a better fit for their life. Because as you were saying, people are, they come to work, they stay who they are. And <laughs> that is a big piece of their life is their time at work. And so people are really taking a hard look at what they're doing um, and thinking about how can 
I lead the life I want to lead and have my work fit into that in a way that makes sense and makes me happier. So organizations have to think about this and need to start focusing on actual changes to help improve people's mental health, their wellness at work. Um, And it can't be these kind of band-aid fixes that people often have done in the past, things that are, you know, more trendy, like providing yoga classes or, you know, discounts on gym memberships or some sort of, you know, access to some website with a bunch of different types of classes and things like those things are great and people like Mm them. Um, but it doesn't actually help the problem, right? You can't reduce someone's burnout by giving them more things to do. (laughs) You need to like help push back on some of the, the workload issues people are dealing with, um, giving them opportunities to, you know, actually be able to do interesting jobs, have autonomy, flexibility in their work. So in order for an organization to move away from just a trend and just a quick band-aid fix, they need to start looking at themselves um, very holistically and how can they make a culture that allows for people to thrive and a culture that allows for people to disconnect and have a life outside of work. What does work-life balance really mean and what does it really look like? Yeah, it's really an interesting question that you're asking because Patricia and I have been doing some independent research on how people are leading for wellness in the workplace. And something that's really interesting about that project is that we're asking people how they define wellness and we're getting a lot of different responses. (laughs) And I think it's sort of similar for work-life balance that it's not a one size fits all equation. What is balance for one person might not be balanced for another person. So I think that a lot of what we were kind of taught about work-life balance is that it has to be these equal parts, right? Like you spent half your time doing this and then, uh, you know, doing work things. And then at 5 PM you turn off and then you spend the next, however long doing life stuff. And that's balanced. Well, that might not always be the case, right? You might have certain days where you actually are really interested and engaged in the work that you're doing. And so, you know, you might work a much longer day than you usually do, but on that particular day, that's what you needed in order to feel accomplished and to feel like you achieved the goals that you wanted to achieve. And that might be okay. The next day you might feel like, wow, I really put a lot of energy towards work. And so today I'm going to try to um, get some life stuff done. Right. Or maybe you have a week that you're really invested in doing, um, you know, something that you really care a lot about and you're engaged with. And so it doesn't feel as much like work, like, how we think about it as like this, like dreadful activity, right? Um, You're doing something that's actually energizing you and making you feel better. And then maybe the following week you switch gears and you do something in a different domain, but it's really not about equal parts. It's more Mm -hmm. about what it means to you to be balanced. Um, Some people look at wellness really holistically across both physical, mental, um, spaces, right? They're thinking both about the mental wellness and their physical wellness and other people kind of frame it into one or the other bucket, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Even the term workplace wellness was new to me as of like a few weeks ago when I even thought of this <laughs> episode. Um, I feel like there's so many new like terms and, and trends and buzzwords and, and all these things. And it's, it's so cool that we can define it the way, the way we want to and the way it feels good to us. Whose responsibility is employee well-being? I know when I thought of this question, I I thought of like CEO or HR or someone else. I'd love to hear what you think. I feel like um, it's everybody, in honesty, (laughs) um, because managers can do a lot. Senior leaders leaders can set the tone from the top for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So ensuring that the workplace has 
appropriate policies and that they're role modeling from the top down that people are actually creating an environment that wellness can thrive in. So that means like if every person in the top works a million hours a week and never takes a break and never takes vacation, then everybody watching that is going to feel like they can't either. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Managers can also role model that um, on a more micro level for their team because that's the daily experience that people have. Um, But employees can also support each other in that, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you're working on a project with a coworker and they're constantly emailing you off hours or putting pressure on you to complete work on the weekends, et cetera, that could be a problem, right? So pressure to not be well can come from all different angles. And similarly, pressure to be well, right? Like creating that culture where people actually support each other in their wellness. Like, no, take your break. We can talk about this later. Or, you know, I don't actually need you to answer this email at 10 PM or Mm. when you're on vacation, I'm not going to expect that you're going to answer your phone. Like those are things that everybody can help support. Mm. Definitely leading by example, top-down approach that you were talking about. And the employee to employee, I love that because I think it's also checking in with ourselves and each other. I I think we can really move past just like, how are you? Like, it's a great question. Everyone always asks it, but are we really prepared to, to answer it or prepared to hold whatever someone answers? So I think it's really important to ask different different kinds of questions at work too. Um, in, in my business ethics class that I'm taking this semester, we were talking about bringing your heart to work. What do you um, think about this? I think it's really important to bring, you know, your whole self to work um, and be that person, right? Because how can you support someone's wellness as an employee, as a manager, as a leader, if you are not bringing your heart to work? Um, we talk a lot about psychological safety and creating spaces where people can feel comfortable to raise issues, can come talk to their leaders about what's going on. You know, all of that's really important. And you can't create a safe environment if you aren't able to, you know, be inclusive of everyone, be kind to people, allow them to to share, you know, concerns or make mistakes and help them learn from it instead of punish them. So there's a lot around being supportive and and creating that type of environment that's really important. And I don't like when you think of bringing your heart, like using that terminology, you can't really do that, right? Unless you do bring your heart to business, bring your heart to work and and are able to care for the people around you and like actually care about them um, and care about whether or not they're, they're doing okay or not doing well and what you can do to help them and support them if they're not doing well. Um, an organization is just a group of people, right? Like Katina was talking about when she was describing, you know, our field and like how people you know, they're still people when they get to work. It's a group of people that are coming together for a, a common goal. And as when you think about sports teams, when you think about any types of groups of people, the ones that do the best, that work the best together are the ones that actually care about each other and support each other. And so I think it's very, very important for everybody's well-being for um, us to come with our hearts to work and for leaders to really lead by example in that case. Mm, absolutely. And when I was um, sharing or rather promoting this podcast episode that's coming out later this week, I put out a series of Instagram polls. Um, I did three and they, I thought they were pretty interesting <laughs> results so far. The first one I put out was my employer cares about my well-being. Um, so the two options were yes or no. Uh, the second one was I can talk about my mental health at work yes or no. And then the last one was, I understand what my organization can do to help my mental health. I do or I do not. 
And so far, it's pretty split, all three of them, which I thought was mm. pretty interesting because I think not some organizations are, have figured this out or are figuring it out. Um, some have not. And I thought that the last one was really important, um, understanding what my organization can do to help my mental health, because um, that if we don't know what our organization can do to help us, we won't feel like we can even ask for help. And that, I think, is the, fir- the first part for sure. We need to be able to to talk about um, mental health at work. And that kind of goes back to some of that safety and the heart pieces that we were just mentioning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think also, I kind of touched upon this before, I think workplace wellness is also about asking the right questions. Um, what do you think are the kinds of questions employers should be asking to check in with their employees' stress and anxiety? Well, we obviously don't want to be asking questions that are so direct that they're violating HR policy. Like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, tell me about your mental health struggles or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be, right? We want to make sure that we're respecting employees' privacy and not asking prying questions. But I think that you can basically demonstrate to people that you're open to having conversations. So you can ask questions like, how are you feeling today? Or what's been getting in your way? Or are there challenges that you're facing in work that I can help you with? Are there challenges that you're facing outside of work that I can help you with? So these more general questions, I think, are often useful at opening the door to a conversation that shows employees that you're willing to recognize them as people, as human beings, and you're not thinking about them as robots. Um, You can also share some of your challenges and struggles too, as well as some days that you're, you know, doing great, making positive progress. So I think that when you're role modeling those sorts of things to show that, you know, I'm willing to talk about some of the things that I'm experiencing as a human being, I'm asking questions to find out more about you as a human being. And then we're able to really have these dialogues that might start off maybe more surface level, but over time might build to be something, you know, more meaningful or deeper level can really help to open the door for employees to feel comfortable sharing with you in a way where you're not actually asking them directly. Like I'm saying these like prying questions where you, Mm -hmm. they feel like you're, you know, invading their privacy, but rather that you're just starting a conversation to send the signal that well-being is important to me. It's something I think we should talk about. Mm -hmm. It's something that I'm open to talking about with my, about my own challenges and opportunities and that this isn't a taboo topic at work. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure HR policies differ organization to organization, but like you were saying, like not asking those prying questions, what happens when an employee volunteers that information and shares their mental health struggles? What do you do then? Yeah, I think, well, from a general perspective, yes, there are HR policies that that are different based on organization, but there are some kind of ground rules, Mm -hmm. I would say, that are specific to the U.S. as a whole or whatever country you're in. And then Mm -hmm. each state has their own rules. Um, So, yeah, we need like you need to respect people's privacy from like a mental health perspective, not ask questions about health, mental health, any of that um, from an HR perspective and a legality perspective. If they open up to you and share with you, that's a different Mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. If an employee shares with you um, what they're struggling with, the important piece there is to think about what resources you can provide to help them. Well, first find out, do they just want to l- you to listen, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they just want to tell you, like, I've actually been dealing with anxiety and I've been going to therapy and blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. because of that, um, some days I feel distracted at work, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they just want to tell you that and just want to vent. And then you just listen and you take that in and, you know, you can check in with them, see how they're feeling few days later, you know, let them know that you're there to talk about it if they ever want to talk. Um, 
And th- and that's really it. You don't really have to do much in that moment if that mm-hmm. person is just opening up and sharing. Sometimes people will be asking for accommodations, though. Sometimes someone will say, you know, I might, there might be days where I'm really struggling with this and, you know, I might need to be flexible to make my therapy sessions or appointments, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where the leader or the person that, ideally in this case, a leader would be able to help support that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Other employees will not always be able to provide those, those types of resources, but can point people to the right direction, you know, encourage them to talk to someone within the organization that they know is trustworthy. Um, so thinking about what resources you have available and knowing when to point them to HR when needed, right? So there might mm-hmm. be certain situations where maybe a stressor at work is, for example, like harassment, right? They're really struggling with mental health and then you find out it's because there's a harassment issue at work or or something like that where you need to escalate it. Um, and that's where you would want to refer to like HR policies and how those mm-hmm. things are handled. But generally speaking, if you're a manager or leading somebody like that, that's dealing with those types of issues, you have to escalate it to HR and then they can have a conversation with the HR person and, you know, figure out what the next steps are. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of a convoluted answer. It kind of depends <laughs> on what they're telling you. Yeah. But um, but realistically, the most important piece is to be open to what they're saying, you know, support them, show support, listen, truly mm-hmm. listen, and and then kind of figure out what the next steps are and ask them. If they haven't told you anything that you need to do, you can always just ask them if there's anything that they want you to do or need you to do in the moment, um, because maybe they're just truly venting. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to creating safe spaces. I think when people open up, it is a testament to the environment that they're in, that they feel comfortable to do so. Um, So I think it's all about that safe space you were talking about before. What inspires you to be even more than okay? Hmm. This is a very good question. Um, I feel like, honestly, there are people who are very inspirational, who help to give me some, like, boost when I feel like maybe I'm not doing okay. Mm. Um, So Patricia is one of those people because she is very uh, awesome to work with and just, like, very full of encouragement and great ideas. And so I think that working with her has been really awesome because even if, if one of us is having a bad day, I feel like the other one can help them to feel better. And, um, also just like help create some conditions where it's easier to still like to cope with whatever's going on as well. Mm. Um, and then also like my husband and my dog and Mm. some like good friends that I have and things (laughs) like, where you just feel like even if one area of your life feels like it's not going as well as you wanted it to, they make you feel better about other aspects of you that are important that you might not be thinking about in that moment, but do mean something. Right. So I Mm -hmm. think it's kind of people who remind you of the, like the holistic view of yourself that even if Mm -hmm. in one area you're kind of frustrated, there are other places where you can remember what you have done well, um, Mm -hmm. during that day or over time. Thank you. I want to steal your answer. (laughs) That's such a good one. Um, I mean, that's such a great call out, right? Like the people in your life that can help make your life easier. And, uh, Katina definitely makes my life a lot easier and really helps Mm -hmm. me when I'm having bad days. So mm, love it. But, um, the thing I was going to say before you like totally outshone me with a much nicer answer <laughs> was um, thinking about 
the things that help inspire me to, you know, to feel more than okay is similar, but it wasn't people related. I was thinking about like holistically, when you think about your life in general, like if you're having a really bad day at work, like there's probably something else in your life that you can be grateful Mm -hmm. for. Um, whether that's family members or like another project that you're working on, that's an accomplishment that you're feeling really strongly about, or maybe even something as simple as like, you had a really great workout that day. And like, you (laughs) did that. Um, those types of things I think can really help set perspective that, you know, a bad day or bad piece of your day or something rough going on in one part of your life. Um, odds are there's probably going to be something positive somewhere that you can look to and cling to. So I think it's Mm. just practicing gratitude and really taking a moment to be mindful of what else is in your life and, and being grateful for that, I think can really help. Thank you for listening to the okay days. Like what you heard, rate, review, and click to subscribe, share with your friends so we can continue to find ways to talk about mental health and for more follow the okay days or learn more at the Music by Keon Music. I'm your host, Eden, and I'll see you soon.